You're listening to our weekly podcast, Getting in the Word with Stuart Guthrie. Stuart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship of Ridgeville in Early Branch, South Carolina. We hope to grow together with you, seeking real knowledge from the truth, the Word of God. Here's Stuart. Well, again, welcome to all of those watching online as well. Um, We are going to this morning start a new series called The Seven Seas of History. And uh, this series is a series that I did many years ago, um, and I kind of stole the graphics from Answers in Genesis. A lot of churches will have these seven seas of history drawn or colored on the walls of the youth programs and the youth buildings. Um, But nevertheless, I think it's a series that is an essential part of understanding the totality of Scripture and how all of these seven seas of history play from beginning to end, and I think it'll be an important factor. So we'll look at seven major events throughout the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so here are the seven C's that I want us to consider um, this next seven weeks. Number one is creation. And then we're going to move from creation to corruption, from corruption to catastrophe, from catastrophe to confusion. And then we go from confusion to Christ, cross, and then the consummation, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll today start with the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings as we look at really chapter 1 and chapter 2 as a whole. But uh, there are essential elements of these chapters that I want us to focus in on. Now today as we consider the seven seas of history and specifically creation, There are many who claim issues with the biblical creation account and feel that it's necessary to come up with all of these different theories and and ideas of how these things took place. And many buy into these ideas, taking some of these different ideas and going with them. But I want you to consider the implications that come along with that. Because the reality is, is we have many scholars, many professors and pastors, and many others who disagree with the creation account, the biblical creation account. So we have all kinds of different ideas and theories when, in regards to creation. You have the young earth theory, you have the old earth theory, you have the gap theory, you have the day age theory, you have a progressive idea and you have an intelligent design theory. There are so many different ideas out there, but the question really is, is what does the Bible say? Because all of these ideas in reality have one intention and one purpose, and it's to discredit the authority of Scripture. I personally, as I study, wish to understand what the Bible teaches about the creation account. And I want to know what the Bible teaches me and tells me to understand in regards to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the reason being is because if we fail to understand the biblical understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, everything else falls to pieces. And so I hope that as we look through these verses today, that you will have a better understanding of the creation account from the Scriptures. Even if we don't understand how the age of this earth seems to 
be older from a scientific view point, nevertheless, we have never been called to prove that. We'll look at Genesis and the creation and how it all works out, and I'm sure that God's Word will be very precise in the order and the fashion for which it is describing God's involvement in creating that which we exist today, all of this world and all of humanity. Genesis is the root in which all of the rest of the Bible is connected. And I believe that it is the number one reason that Genesis chapter 1 is the most attacked chapter in all of the Bible. Because in reality, if they can discredit Genesis 1-1, then they can discredit the rest of Scripture. They can cast doubt on the rest of God's authoritative Word. But the reality is, is the same goes that if you can believe Genesis 1-1, which I do, and I hope that you will, then we can stand on the rest of Scripture as well. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Here in this book, we find God's beginning of His creation. We find the beginning of the human race. We find different races. We find different languages. We, we find the beginning of sin. We find the beginning of the progress of redemption by which God from the foundations of the world had a plan to bring mankind into saving grace through His Son Jesus Christ. The beginning, we see that God made a choice to choose Israel to bring about Messiah. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. Now, the authorship of Genesis is an important one. Uh, the Scriptures teach that Moses is the writer, the author of Genesis. And you'll find that this has even been put under attack. Many try to disprove that Moses has wrote the book of Genesis. And again, I believe it's a work of discrediting the authority of Scripture and ultimately discrediting even the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to delude the authority of God's Word. If you look at Exodus 24, we see that Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 31 verse 24, it says that it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were completed. Now, if I ask you this morning, what is the book of the law? You would say, well, it's the first five books of the Bible. Right? Moses has been credited. God credited Moses in writing the book of the law. How about Jesus? Yes, Jesus refers to Moses as having written the book of the law in the first five books of the Bible. How about Luke? In Acts, he credits Moses as the author. Paul, as he even quotes this in Leviticus. Listen, the fact is, as many people are trying to disprove the authority of God's Word through the authorship, even that is attacked. And to attack that is to discredit Jesus, is to discredit Luke, is to discredit Paul, is to discredit God, which ultimately attacks the sufficiency and the authority of God's Word, which is what we talked about last week. Every angle of the enemy 
is to discredit the living and active Word of God. Because without this, there is no standard. You can just live however you want. You can do whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want. But if God created this world, He has revealed Himself through this written Word, then you and I are under the authority of God's living Word. We don't get to choose what is moral. We don't get to choose what is right and wrong. God is the author. God is the intender of what He has written. And so, the reality is, is we need to make sure we understand. Because Jesus can't say that Moses wrote the book of the law and say that he didn't and still Jesus be moral. That would make him out to be a liar. And we would never say such a thing. Now many of you, as you encounter secular schools and universities, you're going to be attacked, young people. This may seem like an awkward word, but in, in when you go to school, what you're going to face in the, in the universities is the documentary hypotenuse theory, the JEDP. Now you say, what is that? Well, this is what the secular schools use and the universities use to try to discredit a literal translation of Genesis. And so when you try to discredit the, 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 the intention and the literal translation of Genesis, you can create whatever you want. And it discredits the reliability of the Scriptures. Listen, in the last 1850 years of church history, no Christian has taught different than that Moses was the author of Genesis. Listen, it's a tool of the devil to discredit God's Word. But Matthew reminds us that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This book is attacked and we need to continue to study these attacks and be ready. So I encourage you to go to AnswersInGenesis.org and you'll find some great resources there because really this attack has to do with this. If Genesis 1 and the Word of God can be attacked and the sufficiency of Scripture is not reliable, ultimately the Gospel could be manipulated. So we must stand on God's Word. We must stand on God's Word. Understanding Genesis as a whole will surely help us understand what's happening. And so Genesis really can be divided ultimately all 50 chapters into two sections. The historical section and the biographical section. With the biographical section being the latter part, verses or chapter 12 to 50, and the historical part being the first 11 chapters. Now in this historical section, it consists of really our first four sermons of the seven seas of history. We're going to look at chapter 1 and 2 today. That's creation. Then chapter 3 deals with corruption. That's the fall of man where sin has infiltrated humanity and caused a separation between us and God and shows us our need for a Savior because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in chapters 6 to 19, we're going to find about this catastrophe, the result of the fall of man, in which God sent a flood to the earth and killed all but eight. 
And then we're going to look at the confusion of chapters 10 to 11 in which man in the Tower of Babel and how God confused the languages because they had decided they were going to step outside of the bounds of what God had expected from them. And then as we come to the biographical section, chapter 12 to 50, chapter 12 to chapter 25, we learn of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Chapter 26 and 27, we learn of Isaac whom had his son Jacob and Esau with his wife Rebekah. And then in verse uh, chapter 28 to 36, we learn of Jacob, the son of Isaac, in which forms the twelve tribes of Israel. And the latter part in chapter 37 to 50, the longest section of a man by the name of Jacob. And if you don't know the story of Jacob, boy, you are missing out on some good reading. Um, Joseph was considered a pitcher, a type of Christ, a protector of Christ's people. And this gives us a little better understanding at least of the whole makeup. But for sake of time this morning, I want us to consider first creation. Three things I want to point you as we that will help guide us through these chapters one and two. Number one, I want you to see and understand that God created for a period of time. He's very specific. Number two, God created for a purpose of order. And then lastly, that God created for a perfect partner. Perfect partner. Now I'm not going to read all two chapters. We'd be here too long. But I want us to consider the first five verses of chapter 1. And as well, verse 31. Let's begin reading together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and He called the light day and the, the darkness He called night and there was evening and there was morning and there was one day. And then here in verse 31, God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. I think it's important as we consider creation that God has created first for a period of time. Verse 1 simply steps right out and tells us, in the beginning, God. Um, if you study the, the, the word God in the Hebrew, it's in the plural form, which is the first argument of the triune God in which we find here in the beginning chapters of Genesis. Now, Moses doesn't need to try to explain God here. He simply presents Him as God. And sometimes I think really we try too often to prove God. When the Bible tells us that we already know that God exists. We saw that last week when we looked at Romans 1, 18 and 19. Listen, there can be those who claim to be atheists. There are those that can claim to be agnostic and that's fine. They can claim those things. But the reality is the Scripture tells us that they are without excuse. Look at what it says here. The wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all of the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, their wickedness, which uh, since what has what be, may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Listen, God has made it known to all of humanity through His creation, through His divine powers and His attribute that He exists. They are without excuse. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Now when you read this in the Hebrew, you could say the fool has said in his heart, No God. You say, well, well that's a simple uh, difference. What, what's the big deal? Well, if I were to tell you that um, I would like to go out to lunch with you today, you could say no. It's not that there wasn't lunch offered. And really, you just simply say no. But here, they are denying what they already know to be true. They are simply rejecting due to some kind of lifestyle commitment to sin or some way of life they don't want to give up that is contrary to the Word of God. It is a sheer disobedience a knowledgeable disobedience because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In verse 1, it says that God created. That's important because the Hebrew word here for create is bara. It means to create something from nothing. You and I can't create like God creates. You cannot create like God creates because everything we create comes from something that already exists. Listen, you could build a beautiful house, but you can't create a house from nothing. God does. You might bake a tasty cake, but I promise you, you need ingredients for that to happen. But when we read the Scriptures, it says in the beginning, God created. He took something that did not exist and from nothing created something. Only God can do that. God is all-powerful. No one is able to create something out of nothing but God Himself. So here we see that in the beginning there was this start, suggested that there is an end. And while God was the one who began the beginning, He will also be the one who brings about the end of all things in His own timing. And no one knows when that will be, but we know it will be. And we believe that by faith because the Word of God teaches us that. So we have God creating heaven and earth. Something out of nothing. The powerful Creator makes the magnificent creation. But what we see here, I believe, is six days of creation. God began His powerful work and there is no one to help Him of what it should look like. He decides on His own that He creates humans to have a, a nose here and an ear here and a mouth here. He creates a tree to grow toward the sun. He creates every aspect of the human body, every part of our DNA, He creates from nothing. Listen, we have a we have a struggle to name a dog. He creates the dog. 
He creates the elements and the fashions of all animals. He creates every detail of everything in our life that exists. He is magnificent. And there is something here that I want to bring to your attention. Every day that God created something, every day He made something, and everything, every time He said something into existence, showed His power. God had results. When He spoke, things happened. Not only is He successful in making something out of nothing, but He ends His creation each day with this important phrase. There was evening and there was morning, then a day. You say, why is that important? That is very important in understanding biblical creation. Now people argue that this it could be a long period of time. They will quote scriptures like, one day to the Lord is like a thousand years. Day-age theory people will explain that the days of creation were extended times during the day. They are try their best to understand science and Scripture together. The people that wish to hold the gap theory wish to teach that there are long periods of time between verses 1 and verse 2. Why? Well, here in verse 5, for example, we see the English word day. I'll tell you why they want to do this. is because they want science to be over the Bible. And they want to understand this through the lens of science. That's not how we operate as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We believe the Word is sufficient. It's without error. It is sustaining. And it gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So science is here and the Word of God is here. And if we are going to understand biblical science, we need to understand that through the lens of Scripture. It's called a biblical worldview. And they want to discredit that. But nevertheless, in your mind and in my mind, when we read these Examples here in verse 5 when it says, Then God called the light day and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. It's very clear that when we think about that, we think about one day. We think about a literal 24-hour day. But the problem is this. That leaves the earth only about 6,000 years old. When was the last time you heard a commercial? that describe the earth only being 6,000 years old. You won't hear that in the university. So if we hold to a literal 24-hour day, that only leaves the earth about 6,000 years old. People don't like that. Because why? It doesn't match up to their science. Well, have we ever thought for a second, maybe their science is wrong? They say they have proof that the earth is millions of years old, if not billions of years old. Do you know the difference between million and a billion? There's a little bit of gap there between their error. I heard a comment the other day in an interview with whoever the guy is who owns Tesla. 
I really forget his name. I can't even remember it. Elon Musk. And he says that the, the earth is billions of years old and that in a half of a billion years, the, the, the sun is going to expand and, well, the earth is going to evaporate. I'm like, dude, how do you know this? You know, I mean, we just take things in people's words so, so lackadaisically. And it, and it contradicts everything we see in the Scripture. I, was, I posted something on my Facebook. It says, uh, this company is designing a, a, a vehicle that flies. And it only fails one time out of so many billion flights. And I, so you know what my logical thing is? How do they know that? So I said, well, at least I'm going to give them one minute to fly that sucker up in the air and land it. One minute. And if they did that a billion times, it'd take 127,000 years. So how can they say that it only fails one time out of a billion if they only flew for one minute? Listen, we got to stop just taking people at their words. The Word of God, God has fixated some amazing truths in here that are that are valuable, and we need to hold to those. There's some major errors in the aging of this earth. You know, we had a, in one of the churches I pastored in Montana, Sealy Lake, Montana, it was a mining or milling community. And so they would bring all the trees and there was a wood mill there. And they had these furnaces where they would burn. And one of the owners of the furnace took a rock that had been created from the furnace and had it sent off and tested and came back 10, billion, 10 million years old. And he's, you know, it's, it was created in the mill in the last year and a half. So, so we got to just stop believing. Kids, we have to stop just believing because some professor who has a doctorate, listen, I have a doctorate, that doesn't make me smart, just means I did the work. Can we just be honest? Doesn't make me any smarter than you, just means I was able to get the papers written and it made sense. But if it wasn't because of the smart people proofing my paper going, you probably need to change this or you need to add this, you need to, it's, it's all a facade. This is your authority. This is my authority. Not some man-made idea. There's major errors in these people's timings and developments of the earth's age. Listen, I don't really have a problem holding the idea that God created the earth in six literal days. I don't have a problem believing the miracles in Genesis either. Because if I believe that from the foundations of the world that God created me from nothing and made me a human and breathed into my nostrils the breath of life and then sent His Son to die on a cross that I might have life and live forever because He had to shed His blood so I could be forgiven, why would I have a problem believing that the God who created everything we see did it in six days? We have a low view of God in our day. We have a low view of God and a high view of man. We'll take man's opinion over God's opinion any day of the week. Listen, I think it's pretty straightforward in the Word of God what God means. The gap age feared folks really have to throw some allegorical thinking into the text to get that out of there. The, the, the folks who hold this day-age theory have to do the same as well. Listen, we... we why do we need to explain why the earth looks so old? I mean, have you ever met a young person who looks old? There's not much to explain. They just look old. God can create 
whatever he wants, however he wants, and make it look however it looks. Can't God just make things that old? He is God. And if He can create the world and everything in it out of nothing, what's the problem then? In Bible college, we call this eisegesis. That's reading into the text that which does not exist. The, 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 the design of the Scriptures is for us to exegete, to pull out what the authorial intent is, what the author intended. I don't have the right to read something into the text of Scripture so that I can do or create something I want. No, my job is to read the text and pull out what the author has intended. We need to exegete the Word of God. Now listen, I understand the Hebrew word for yom here uh, is, can be used for different usages in the Bible. It can mean a, it can mean daylight. So day in Hebrew is yom. Um, we translate it day, but it could mean an, in, an, an indefinite period of time. It can mean an exclusive period of time. We, we sometimes do this when we say, you know, back in the day, right? We're talking about a specific period of time when we were younger. But listen, here's the interesting part. 99% of the time, when Yom is used in the Scriptures, it's used as a literal 24-hour day. 99% of the time. Jews this way. Genesis 34 to 25 talks about when all of those men were in pain from the circumcision because they had them circumcised and they killed them. Read it, it's interesting. But they say here on the third day, nobody questions that. Genesis 27 45, why should I bereave of you both in one day? Remember when the father wanted to send his sons to Egypt and he didn't want to send them all. He only, he only wanted to send one. Nobody questions that one day. Exodus 10.22. I mean, I could just go on and on. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was a thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. Exodus 16.5. On the sixth day. No one's fighting over these. That they mean something different than what the text says. Why? Because here's the deal. If you can mess up creation that God has done in six literal days, then you can mess up the rest of the Word of God. And if we're blind to that reality, boy, we are certainly blind. God wasn't surprised though. God is an amazing writer. He's very detail-oriented nevertheless. If we're not reminded, He knows all things. He's not surprised of the attacks that are coming down the pipe. And I believe that's why He makes the point in verse 5. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. In verse 8, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Verse 13, and there was evening, and there was morning a third day. 
in verse 19. And there was evening, and there was morning, and a fourth day. In verse 23, there was evening, and there was morning, and the fifth day. And then again in verse 31, and God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the sixth day. God knows that this book would be attacked and builds a defense system. Okay, refute the idea that Yom can mean more than one day, which would be ultimately taking the passage out of context, considering this, that not once in the Word of God is the word Yom used with a number and did not refer to a literal 24-hour day outside of Genesis 1. Yom is used 359 times. And each time it's used, my friends, it is used in a literal 24-hour day. Why would Genesis 1 be the exception? Unless there was an intention. But God in His ability to know all things foresees that and states in all six days of creation there was evening, there was morning, one day. Listen, everywhere outside of Genesis it refers to a 24-hour solar day. If there's a gap of time, then none of this works. But nevertheless, we know that's not the case. Birds and all need these elements. Birds didn't eat each other before the fall. Bugs need pollination. However, how can there be a gap of time? Listen, I think it works out just perfectly the way God intended it. And we need to stop trying to fit the Bible into science. Science is great, but not great enough to change the Bible and its meaning to make it right. The Bible is all authoritative. It's right. And if it seems wrong, it's our, our finite understanding that messes it up, not the Word of God. Answers in Genesis says it this way, taking Genesis 1 in this way at face value, without doubt it says that God created the universe, the earth, the sun, the moons, the stars, the plants, the animals, and the first two people within six ordinary, approximately 24-hour days. And I love the concept here. Being really honest. And this is the number one rule of inter interpretation. You don't take the most... You, you, what did the author say? What is the most simple understanding of the text? Being really honest, you would have to admit you could never get the idea of a million years from reading this passage of Scripture. Never. You can't read this creation account and go, hmm, that's a million years. No, it says one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days. Look, because God is infinite in power and wisdom, there is no doubt He could have created the universe and its conduit at, at, at whatever time He chose. Six days, six minutes, six years, it doesn't matter. 
God is able, my friend. Luke one thirty seven says, With God nothing shall be impossible. Why? Because He is God and we are not. You say, well, Pastor, you sure are passionate about this. Yeah, I'm passionate about this. Because when you mess with Genesis 1-1, you mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you mess with a little interpretation of Genesis, then everything is allegorized. Well, there really wasn't a flood. Listen, if you understand the flood, then you can understand science. You can understand all of the fossils that are remaining today that we can study. I encourage you to look up answers in Genesis. I think you'll be very encouraged. Listen, God created for a period of time. And that, my friends, was six literal days. But secondly, I want us to see that God created for a purpose of order. Now in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1, we find that God is creating humans differently than anything else in which He is created. Why? Because you and I as humanity are created in the image of God. Out of all of the creation in chapters 1 and 2, the height of God's creation was humanity. Was humanity. Look at verses 26 to 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There's that triunity God. The triune God. And so... They will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image and in the image of God He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all of the earth and every tree that has the the fruit and the, the tree yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky, Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Listen, humans were the height of God's creation. He designed you to have a relationship with Him. He designed you to have a personal relationship with Him. Not just to understand certain facts about Him, but to have a real, genuine, life-living relationship with Almighty God. God set standards though. Here in Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. This is the uniqueness. I want you to understand every single human to ever live on this earth, no matter how bad, no matter how wicked, they are created in the image of God and they therefore have intrinsic value. And if the worst of enemies are under the bondage of Satan, then we have the key to unlock them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must never forget the intrinsic value of human life. We ought to be standing up for human life in the womb. We ought to be standing up against abortion. We ought to be voicing our opinion of how wicked and evil it is. 
because God has given human life intrinsic value. It is murder no matter how we want to cut it. Life begins at conception. Sin begins at conception, Psalm 51.5. And if sin begins at conception and we were born into iniquity and in the mother's womb, then sin begins at conception. Therefore, life begins at conception. So we are called to understand that system for which God has created. God set standards for us as humans. He gave us purposes. Verse 28 we're called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I know in 2022, we live in a day when children are considered an inconvenience. Listen, I have seven kids. I've heard the jokes. <laughs> you don't know what a TV is? You don't have one? You don't know what causes that? You ain't figured it out yet? Listen, children are a blessing. They're not an inconvenience. They're not a curse. Only a perverted, sick, and wicked generation would ever look at the life of a baby and consider it an inconvenience. But in the last days, men will be lovers of self. We are living in a day when that is the case. They would rather execute life so that they don't have to change theirs. Children are a blessing. They're not a curse. They are a gift from God. And God calls us to bring forth children. Don't joke about people when they have lots of kids. Celebrate them. Tell them how blessed they are. Tell them what an encouragement they are. Because I can promise you it ain't easy. And it sure ain't cheap. Especially when they can eat like mine. Psalm 127, 4 and 5 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. How blessed is a man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I love my children. And if God would have gave me 20, I would have had 20. God gave me seven. He gave me eight ones in heaven waiting. We've been called a specific purpose for which He has created this world. And let me tell you what, the sexual perversion of our day of the transgender, the LBGTQ movement, listen, fights against the very creation order. Because I don't care who you are, you can't plug a male adapter into a female adapter and get power. Or a female into a female. Go go plug that plug in with a... It don't work. It ain't God's design. God designed a man and God designed a woman and He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Therefore, anything outside of that order is obviously not God's plan. Verse 28 tells us that we are to rule over the earth. We are called to be good stewards of what God has placed over us. God has placed us over. We're, we're called to manage everything and that moves upon the earth. Now, I understand that in the creation order before the fall, before we get to Genesis 3, that we were not designed to eat the animals. But God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. God knows what's coming. God knows the curse is coming. And therefore, the animals will ultimately be designed for us to eat. And so, we have other avenues by which people want to protect animals. People like PETA 
but I believe it means people eat tasty animals. That is a result of the fall. But do we have we ever considered the the implications of letting letting every animal live? Now, I, I'm not a wildlife management guy, but we have a game warden here, and I'm certain that he deals with animals running into vehicles and taking people's lives. And boy, if we just let every deer ever to ever live walk, and we'd be each other and going down the road is already bad enough now. And uh, we got a pretty good long season here in South Carolina. The implications is that we are to manage what God has entrusted to us. And we need to do it well. God has placed these animals ultimately as a result of the fall as food and plants as food. We must manage them well. We must be good stewards over what God has entrusted and given us. Genesis 2, we see that God gives man to name the animals. Could you imagine having the responsibility of naming all the animals? I mean, you know how creative you got to be? That's a mosquito. Who came up with that name? Like dog, cat. I mean, I could understand the simple three-letter words, right? That would be mine. Bird. It's the same words we teach our children, right? To learn how to read. But God gave man the ability to name animals. And in Genesis 20 or 2.20, we see Adam names all the animals. But for Adam, the Lord says, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God created for a purpose. He created for a specific purpose. We've seen God's creation for a period of time, for a purpose of order. But thirdly, I want you to see for a perfect partner. Let's read verse 21 and 25. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the first uh, the, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. And man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God is still creating something out of nothing here. He has made man, and He has made woman, and He has fashioned them together. To become one flesh. Verse 22, we see that God brought this woman to man. And she was taken out of the man. Verse 24, the process of what happens when two become one in marriage. Man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Sometimes in life, we have kids that can't afford to be married. In fact, when you leave your mother and father and join together with your wife comes a sense of responsibility. So here's the deal, young people. Be wise in who you choose to spend the rest of your life with. Because I want you to understand very clearly, God takes it very serious. 
And we live in a, a perverted culture. We live in a very sick culture that does not value marriage. And you need to understand that it is vitally important. This idea of God bringing man and woman together and making them into one flesh, it is a serious deal. It is a lifelong commitment. It doesn't matter what's happening around you. The reality is, is this, God takes it serious. And it's my job to encourage you in that. Listen, we've all made mistakes. Maybe your parents have made a mistake. That's not the point. We're going to make mistakes. But right is right and wrong is wrong whether I like it or not. Listen, God said they shall become one flesh. Everyone with someone thinking of getting married, you need to follow this order. There is a standard. There is an order. You don't go out and have a relationship with a woman and become one flesh before you're married. It causes problems. Listen, God created Adam the perfect partner. And they became one flesh. And if God makes something one flesh, that can't be separated. So here's the deal. Make sure you know who you're spending your time with. Look at them. Look at their mama. Look at their daddy. And if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty, go look at their grandparents. Because I've told my children, listen, when you marry somebody, you ain't just marrying them. You marrying mama, you marrying daddy, you marrying the grandparents. Now, while you ought to be leaving and cleaving, you're going to be sharing grandbabies with everybody in that circle. So make sure. But listen, when I, I'm just going to give you some personal advice. When I met my wonderful, beautiful bride, who is a little under the weather today, I was a new Christian. But I had a good daddy who taught me the importance and value of being wise in who you marry. And I decided that this woman, not because she was simply amazingly beautiful, which she, she is still today, by the way, seven kids later, but I evaluated her mama. Her mama's a beautiful woman. That means when she gets old, she's going to be beautiful too. <laughs> right? But I also evaluated her grandmama. She's still a beautiful woman. But beauty's only skin deep. What I noticed about her mama was she was a godly woman who loved the Lord. But more importantly, her grandmama was a godly woman who loved the Lord. And I thought to myself, if I want to spend the rest of my life with an individual woman, I want to make sure that the lineage is good. Because I need all the help I can get. Right? Guys and girls, make sure that you understand who it is you want to spend the rest of your life with. Listen to the advice of your mother and your father. Because I can promise you there is nobody in this world who wants you to be happily married for eternity than your mother and your father. It doesn't matter how their marriage is. 
They want you to be happily married and to live a life that honors God if they love the Lord. And if they don't love the Lord, then find an adult marriage that does honor God as an example to follow. Right? That's important. Listen, we live in a society when divorce is rampant. My objective here is not to beat up anybody. We all make mistakes. Luke 16, 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Mark 10, 11 to 12, he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. If she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 39 states this, a woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. This is just a few. And I read this for the the importance of God's expectation on the marriage for the young people. We need to enter marriage with a high view of what God expects. Young people, followers of the Lord, don't get tied up with the wrong woman or the wrong man. Because despite the massive failure rate of marriages today, the Scripture says that God hates divorce. God does not intend for you to marry and get divorced. Does it happen? Of course it happens. Did God allow it to happen in the Scriptures? Yes. But it's always complicated. And it's always messy. God intends for two to become one flesh, and that doesn't change. He created a perfect partner for Adam, and the Lord has a perfect partner for you. He has a perfect partner for you. So be wise. Get wise counsel before you become one flesh with a woman. I got these statistics years ago. Over forty per, over forty, uh, over a forty-year period, sixty-seven percent of first marriages terminate in divorce. Fifty percent of these divorces take place within the first seven years of marriage. Every year, more than one million children are affected by divorce. If the If that is not staggering to us. Listen, God has created you with a perfect partner in mind. Save yourselves for that. It may take a little longer. It may take quite a few years. You may not find your spouse when you're 18, when you're 19, when you're 20. It may be 25 years. But don't you want to wait until God brings you the perfect partner? Now, when I say perfect, don't misunderstand me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When you marry another human being, they're just as wicked and evil as you. And many times when we walk together, what we do is when we get close in our relationship with Christ, we learn that as we grow in an intimate relationship with the Lord, that we learn to forgive a little easier, don't we? And praise God, my wife is an example to follow. She is a godly woman 
and I married way above my means. But by grace, we live life in a way that honors God and we forgive each other because I am imperfect and she is imperfect. She's a lot more perfect than I am. But nevertheless, when you marry your wife or your husband, make sure he's the right one because that is an eternal perspective for which God has planned and fashioned. God has created a perfect partner for you. God created, and He spoke things into existence for a purpose. We've given, been given order. We've been given the need to live by the book when it makes sense and when it doesn't. Don't conform to this world, but be rather transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what the Lord wants. God created you to have fellowship with Him, to bring glory to Him, to enjoy Him, and to know God ultimately in a personal relationship. Listen, God has revealed Himself. He has revealed His mighty power. And we see in Genesis 1-6 how God separated the waters from below and from above. And it is said that somewhat 773 times heavier is water than air. That would make that water being separated about 54 trillion tons. And God is able, God is powerful, God has created, and He is omniscient. He knows all things, He is sovereign, and He is in control, and He wishes that none of us would live outside of what He has created for His purpose. To think God created so that we might have fellowship is a beautiful thing. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.4 that He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. Listen, I can't help but wonder that in the formation of the world, the creation of all things, that it was all for the plan and the progress of redemption, which comes from knowing Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says that Jesus was our access to Him. When there in that garden, and we'll look at the corruption, chapter 3, when man sinned, there was a separation between us and God. And every single one of us are equally in need of a Savior. It was God. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent us His Son into the world. Listen, He created you. He designed you. He sees the intrinsic value. And so because of our separation, because of our inability to gain access back to God, because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God shows us that He loves us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, for that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but that would have eternal life. Listen, He became our propitiation for sin. This word propitiation ultimately carries the basic idea of appeasement or sanctification specifically towards God. So propitiation is ultimately a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of God and being reconciled to God. Because you've sinned, because you've broken the law of God, the Bible says you are guilty. 
We must be born again. We must be justified, declared right before God so that we can be saved, so that we can be forgiven. And it's through the cross that Jesus becomes our propitiation for us. God created in the beginning. But even before the foundations of the world, the plan, the progress of redemption was in place. And He knew from the beginning that you and I would need a Savior to die on the cross so that we might be saved. So if you're here this morning, you go, oh, all this creation stuff's good, but you don't know Christ personally. You've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Today you can call on Him to save you, to put your faith in Him who is able to save you. Your works, your deeds, your efforts would never save you. Read Titus 3, 4, and 5. Read Galatians 2, 21. Read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, lest no man boast. It was the, the mercy of God who, who, when He revealed to us that we can be saved, not based off the deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. For salvation be kept by keeping the law, then Christ died needless. No, it's by grace. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He created you. And He wishes, listen, that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and believe in Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So what are you waiting on today? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Too many times we preach and we never call people to action. No, no, no. We trust that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God and transforms lives. So what are you waiting on? Now is the appropriate time. You know why? Because God has given you breath in your lungs today. There is no guarantee that you will wake up tomorrow. There is no guarantee you will make it out of this room today. So my encouragement to you is don't delay. Don't wait another day. You've waited so long to put your faith and your trust that Jesus Christ is your way into salvation. So believe today and be saved. Hey, we want to thank you for joining us on our program today. We pray that you are challenged, encouraged, and hope that you will stay connected with us for the weeks to come as Pastor Stewart walks us through the book of John. If you don't have a church home, Pastor Stewart would like to personally invite you to join their worship service at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina. They meet each week at 11 a.m. For more information about the church, visit them at familybiblefellowship.org. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.